I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. Staying independent has allowed me to speak freely and to tell the truth, no matter how unpopular, for many years now, and I wouldn't trade that for anything. We have seen over the last few years how deeply compromised big media is and how willing mainstream journalists are to twist facts and hide the truth to sell a narrative. I opted out of mainstream media and a traditional career path for a reason. I want to come to my own conclusions and not be compromised by financial, political, or corporate limitations. I refuse to trade my integrity or my free speech for a paycheck. But that means I need your help. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so that I can continue to do what I do. Some of you may have noticed I'm no longer posting full video versions of these interviews on YouTube. This is because YouTube dings my channel, gives me warnings, demonetizes me, and has shadow banned me for talking about things like gender identity ideology, the COVID mandates, and other unspeakable issues and views. So if you appreciate the kinds of conversations we're having at the same drugs, wish to support my work and access full interviews, a great way to do that is by becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy or on Substack at www.meganmurphy.ca, where subscribers can be sure not to miss a single episode, can access subscriber-only video content, articles, AMAs, and engage with the comments section, and you can keep up with all my writing there as well. You can, of course, follow the podcast on Spotify and support this podcast directly there by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. And finally, don't drink the Kool-Aid. You may have seen me in a very stylish shirt with that very timeless message online, and you can get your very own at our merch store at www.meganmurphy.ca. Just click the shop tab over there. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. Today on the show, I am speaking with Vincent Gersies, a retired member of the Ontario Provincial Police whose bank account was frozen in February 2022 on account of his involvement with the Freedom Convoy. Vincent, hello. It's so great to meet you. Um, welcome to the podcast. I'm, I'm so looking forward to, to this conversation. It's a conversation that needs to be had. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Yeah, I mean, first, I just want to say that I really appreciate your work and, and your involvement in pushing back against the, what, the, what the government has done over the past three years. Um, I, I know that these, these kinds of actions and speaking up about these kinds of things is a huge risk in a wide variety of ways. So I'm totally, I, you have my full respect. Yeah. Well, when the government is wrong, being right is a dangerous thing. 
Absolutely. Um, let's start at the beginning a little bit. You're a retired police officer. Um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and, and your history? Yeah, so I retired from the Ontario Provincial Police, which in the U.S. is the version of the state police for the province of Ontario and Canada. And for those uh, from the U.S. side that don't understand Canadian geography very well, Ontario's about smack in the middle of the country. It's uh, one of our largest provinces bordering on the Great Lakes. Um, so that's where I spent most of my time in the greater Toronto area in policing. As part of my duties, I was uh, a forensic investigator for a number of years and also an emergency response team member for a number of years as well. So I retired in 2014 and um, it wasn't until this all ramped up that I started paying very close attention to the geopolitical issues across the spectrum, across the world of what's going on. And when COVID ramped up, um, and initially, you know, uh, we did our thing, you know, to flatten the curve, we waited two weeks and you know, I wanted to get the best mask I possibly could. I, I was going to be very pro mask advocate. So I went out looking and uh, studied all the reports and the data for what the best thing is I could find. I was probably going to wear a scuba suit. And when I realized from all the homework I did and all the journals that I read that a mask is not going to help me whatsoever against the virus, I just accepted that and moved on. And then I thought something very strange was happening when the government started mandating that you wear a mask. And uh, that was just ridiculous, you know, that this whole mask thing was just nonsense. And it really opened my eyes to dig into the science more and more on a lot of issues. So the more I dug in, the more I realized that not only are we being deceived uh, by the information that's coming out, we're also being censored on the other side. So you're going to be filled with this information and not allowed to see any of the other information. And you're only going to get one perspective on this. And the more that happened over time, the more I resisted and the more I realized the deceptions went really deep. And eventually things ended up in Ottawa at a trucker freedom convoy that assembled and went across the country to push back against some of the decisions that were being made. And uh, I initially, I didn't really know much about what that was other than through a little bit of social media posts. And when they indicated they were going to be arriving in Ottawa, you know, tomorrow. I thought this is sounding like a pretty big thing. I might want to go and have a look. This sounds kind of historic. So just want to go have a seat. So I, I got in my car with my son and I said, you want to go down there for a day and have a look. So we drove down there and I couldn't believe what I saw. I couldn't believe how big this event really was. It was, it was big. It was beautiful. It was friendly. It was peaceful but it was really growing. It was, it was getting big. And so you can imagine thousands and thousands of people gathering in the extreme cold, the weather was about minus 30. It was snowing uh, and people need to eat. People are looking for a washroom. People are looking for logistical support. The trucks need to keep running. Where are they going to get the fuel? This became a real complicated issue. And uh, I had met up with some people that I knew over the last few years that were uh, thinking the same way I was thinking about the this nonsense and um, people in law enforcement as well. So um, I said, you know, do you need some help here? And they said, yes, absolutely. We're going to need a lot of logistical support. So I very quickly went back another six, seven hour drive back to home base to drop off my son and turned around and did another six, seven hour drive back to get there. And I had packed a suitcase with some clothing 
and said, yeah, I guess I'm going to be here for a while. So uh, while I was there, I, um, you know, I did everything from helping to put toilets in the right place and make sure there was enough toilet paper where it needed to be. And, you know, to arrange the pumping out of these toilets and providing, making sure everybody had water and we had food stations set up and making sure that the truckers had fuel that they'd need. Uh, but a couple of times, somebody asked me to get up on a stage and speak publicly about my position on this. And every time I speak publicly, it's always with respect to the Canadian Charter of Rights, the Canadian Bill of Rights, the International Declaration of Human Rights, and how we have a right to be here and we have a right to do this peacefully. And uh, where we were thinking it might need a little bit of policing to keep things um, safe and peaceful, uh, it didn't. It, everybody was so happy. You know, uh, there are some problems. If, if you're originally from Canada, you would know that the West and the East uh, don't always mix and that, that French side doesn't always mix and the languages don't always mix, except in Ottawa at this time. And everybody was high-fiving and hugging and crying together from East to West, French, English, all religions, all walks of life, every race, color, and creed were all there for the same thing. And it was very, very jubilant until the government said, hey, get out of here. We want you guys to leave. And we didn't feel that that was right. We felt it was unconstitutional. And so we decided to stay. And at one point, uh, we finally decided to do a national press release. And I was part of that national press release. And in my statement in front of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation cameras, I asked all Canadians to come to Ottawa and support this movement. And I guess as a result of asking Canadians to come and support us, the government invoked the Emergency Measures Act and mm -hmm. chose to start freezing people's bank accounts. And my bank account was frozen. So um, within two, three days following that, uh, the police moved in in heavy numbers and started to arrest a lot of people and really put the boots to people. We had the horses come in and trample people. It became very violent on the side of policing. And I was mm -hmm. just disgusted at what I saw. So when we finally chose to leave because things were getting very violent on the side of the government and the police services, um, we connected with a legal team on our way out and they said, you know, we're going to have to file a, a, a judicial review request, which is we're going to have to take this matter to court and get a superior court to make a ruling on, you know, was this legal or illegal for the government to do what it did? And that announcement just came out about a week ago and we have our decision. And, uh, you know, I made some, um, it was a 200 page decision and the highlights that I took away from that, I, I have about five or six real highlights, but that's kind of short for a 200 page decision. So just to kind of summarize of the highlights. Uh, and just, one, just for people who are listening in case anybody doesn't know what happened was, I'm sorry to interrupt you, just in case people haven't followed closely. So last week, a court ruled that what the federal government did when they invoked the Emergencies Act in an attempt to shut down the Freedom Convoy um, the, the court ruled that this was unconstitutional and not legal, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. Actually, what, what they said was that the, um, you know, before they came in to shut it down, they declared, uh, they invoked the 
National Emergencies Act, the Emergency Measures Act. Um, that's that's like making a declaration that you know there's a war in the country. It's this thing, and when they do that, it gives the government extreme powers. It basically says you can do whatever you want now. Mm. Okay, uh, extreme powers. And so the uh, justice made a ruling on what happened, and the, and the, the, the short version of what he said was, you know, if, if you got a mosquito, you're going to use a fly swatter, but you took out a cannon to try to get that mosquito. You went way beyond using the amount of, you know, uh, resources you had, and there were many, many other ways to resolve this. And, and the Emergency Measures Act is a last resort, and you had no authority to do that. So the first thing they that they said is that cabinet, uh, the cabinet within government was not entitled to on in, to alter the interpretation of the Emergency Measures Act because they were saying, well, we interpreted it this certain way, okay. but it's cl it's clearly defined within the Act. But you know they made up another interpretive version and said it's okay, we can do that. We can. Do what that. was their interpretation or their claimed interpretation? Well, there were several points that they made up thinking that this is going to help our case and one of them was that like it's harming the country financially it's harming the country financially well financial as if the lockdowns didn't and all the vaccine yeah. mandates <laughs> yeah but but you know there's nothing in the emergency measures act that says anything about financial harms to the country that's right. not that's not what it's intended for so that was one that was that the judge just said okay that was your reason and i'm telling you that's not even allowed Number two was that the convoy did not fit the definition of national emergency. Okay, whatever your definition of national emergency was, it didn't even fit that. The third was that the Emergency Measures Act is to be a tool of last resort. And clearly, uh, there was a lot of things they could have done. I mean, there were no weapons involved. They stated that there were. There was no violence. They said that there was. That's not true. It was becoming one big unity jubilant woodstock is what it was it, it, it you know people were so happy and the music was getting louder and louder and and you know you can imagine you're doing this right on the front steps of government they don't like that uh the other one was that there were no threats to security to the security of canada by definition of the act it says there has to be a threat to the country and and by this point when they invoke the act there there had been some bridge closures across the country and other areas where there were other protests that were breaking out, but they had all been resolved by this point. Everything had been cleaned up by this point, And this was Ottawa was the last location. So you don't have a national emergency all across the country. You're having it happen in this one little spot in, in the national, in the, in the national city, the capital. Mm -hmm. um, so, and the last one, the, the point being that uh, banking attendance, sorry, banning attendance at the protest violated the freedom of expression. So the, the news and the government was saying, you can't come to Ottawa, you can't be there. We've created this red zone. We've identified the area. Anybody caught in this area is gonna be arrested. You know, so if Megan decided, yeah, let's go to Ottawa and have a look. I don't know what's going on. I, you know, and you could even be on the totally the other side of this argument. Uh, but you know, if you're going to be there, you're going to be arrested. No, you can't do that. That that's that's a rights violation in itself. And then the last point was the.
freezing of bank accounts violated the Charter of Rights Unreasonable Search and Seizure um, Clause, and certainly that's where I got caught up. And I'll tell you about the unreasonable search and seizure. So as a, somebody who has been in law enforcement for 32 years, in order for me to get a criminal conviction against anybody or any conviction, you need what's called reasonable and probable grounds. So at the grounds for, for getting a conviction is that, that your grounds were reasonable and they were probable. But in order to lay a charge, let alone the conviction, if we're going to lay a charge, we have to have reasonable suspicion. And that's fair. And that's, that's the way, that's the system that we play in. But when the um, superintendent of the RCMP in charge of intelligence, and RCMP is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So that's like the American version of the FBI. So when the head of uh, intelligence for that organization was, who was put in charge of uh, the, um, it was a superintendent, and he's not the head of the organization, but when the superintendent, Bodwin, um, who was in charge of the freezing of the bank accounts and making these financial orders to the banks, when he was questioned about his analysis process in whose accounts get frozen, he admitted that it was just what they believed. It wasn't based on reasonable grounds. It wasn't based on reasonable suspicion. It was having belief and belief is extremely low on the requirements. Um, so if you just thought, ah, we think that guy has, should have his account accounts frozen just because we think so, then we're going to freeze his accounts. Mm -hmm. And so the judge was scathing in his ruling to say, you can't do that. And by the way, the, the same superintendent admitted that as the days went on, they were just um, kind of flying by the seat of their pants and how they were handling this. There was no policy. They were just kind of making up rules as they went along. And that's not what you do before you freeze somebody's bank account. If, if they want to freeze my bank account, they go before a judge, they submit all of their evidence, and then an independent body like a judge or a court will hear the evidence and say, yeah, you've got grounds that we believe that you should do that. What would be like, what would be reasonable grounds to freeze someone's bank account? Like I mean, under what circumstances could the government ever have the power to freeze someone's bank account? So let's say um, there is evidence to support you're a drug dealer and that's where you've got your money. Let's say there's evidence mm. to support that you're a terrorist, right? Well, Christian Freeland, who is Canada's deputy prime minister, had scribbled on her notepad let's label them as terrorists and freeze their accounts. I saw that. Okay, let's label them as terrorists. Amazing. Okay, so our legal counsel is, <laughs> is very happy about this review as I am and um, a few other people, I'd say in this country, quite a few other people. And so we've decided that we are going to push back. So our legal counsel now is in the process of suing everybody, everybody that was involved in this, everybody that harmed uh, or caused damages or was uh, financially in interfering with the finances of anybody. Uh, we're coming after all of them. Our, our council's coming after all of them. So I can't name names. The list is not complete, but it is going to be an extensive list. 
I want to talk a little bit more about this freezing of the bank accounts because I think that was one of the things that really hit, you know, international news, not in, not in mainstream media, but this is, you know, so many people around the world saw that happen and we're shocked and we're like, okay, we're done with Justin Trudeau. We're done with Canada. What the hell is going on in Canada? They're freezing the bank accounts of peaceful protesters, of people who just donated to support the convoy. Do you have any idea how many accounts were frozen? Um, I know in the Ottawa area, it was about 300 275-ish, something like that in the Ottawa area with the truckers and that. But there were many, many more accounts that were frozen from the donors, people who donated money. Imagine a housewife with kids donated 20 bucks. Yeah. And she's now terrified of the, having made this donation because yeah. uh, the government is saying, if you've donated to this, we're going we're gonna to lock up your accounts. They've announced that. And so people across the country were terrified that, you know, we're all going to have our accounts frozen. And, mm -hmm. and, and I believe many of them were, but some of them were not. So I'm not sure what the total number is, but certainly um, we're now taking steps with uh, a new project that has been launched that is um, really taking off called the Accountability Project. And the Accountability Project is something that is uh, is uh, going to be supportive towards this lawsuit to uh, help to coordinate this whole thing by bringing awareness to what's going on. And uh, I suspect as the, um, the um, project, the accountability project um, morphs over time, you know, it evolves over time, um, will take on not only this project, but we have to go into many, many other areas. We have to hold uh, the regulatory agencies accountable for what they did. We have to hold the media accountable for what they did. Mm -hmm. This is this is a beginning of a, of a wonderful, wonderful process to restore accountability because government is not going to, um, first of all, our government is not accountable. Our police services are no longer accountable. They haven't been for three years. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people would argue with me on the, the, these points that I'm making, and I need to clarify something. Day-to-day -day operations of, you know, traffic enforcement, uh, general criminal law, we're, we're still seeing structure and uh, stability within the system. But there's a narrative out there that, that, that has been happening very intensely over the last three to four years. This, this direction, this narrative, and if you deviate from that narrative, okay, that's where there seems to be no justice. That's where it's very heavy handed. And we've seen in the courts, the courts are not going to listen to the evidence. They're just going to deem we're going to accept that, you know, the sky is blue. So we're not going to talk about that. So we're going to accept that these vaccines were safe. We're going to accept that you, the government should have locked you up in your house. And we're going to accept that you should be wearing your mask. And we're going to accept all these things. So what's your complaint, Megan, you know, when, when you're in court for an issue, you know, you don't have a defense because they won't listen to the other perspectives. They won't listen to the other information and the other, uh, you know, so we've actually got a justice now who made a ruling 
listened to all the submissions, listened to the evidence and said, yeah, this was wrong. And, and that justice, Justice Mosley, was that the name of the judge? Yes. Did I get that right? Yeah. So, and as I understand it, Justice Mosley wasn't actually particularly sympathetic to the convoy. Right. So he had stated that he was not sympathetic to the convoy. Uh, he does live in that area. Now, he didn't say that he went there and had a look himself. I suspect he did not, as most residents in the Ottawa area did not. They just wanted to complain from a distance. Uh, but, you know, he, he had, he's essentially, if you read his report, he's saying, I'm not sympathetic to it. And I would have made the same decision. I would have done the same thing that the government did based on what I knew at the time based on what I knew at the time. Okay, so he's not privy to all the shenanigans of what's going on behind the scenes, but he is turning on his television. He is listening to the news. He is being misled. And so then, you know, he, he changes by saying, but when I saw the evidence that was submitted before me, now he's got accurate information. He's saying, now my, I've changed my mind. Now, now you've convinced me that this was considerable overreach so do you know who was targeted like in terms of those who had their bank accounts frozen you know why did they pick you why did they i mean i suppose i suppose it would be easy to find information about people who donated but it wasn't just people who donated and that's of course completely unjustified um it's all unjustified but what do you, did they ever kind of explain any of their reasoning or did you ever find out any information about who they targeted and why? No, because the, the suit, uh, or I should say the, the judicial review was very broad spectrum. In other words, our legal team went in to present to the justice all their information relative to these rights that were violated. And they're saying, you know, uh, I, I had provided a 15, I believe a 15 page statement. And then I was cross-examined by the lawyers representing the attorney general and solicitor general of, uh, or the attorney general and um, minister of public safety uh, in this cross-examination in this suit. And so we got into it. Uh, they're asking me questions relative to, you know, why were you there? Um, you know, isn't it true that this is what your intent was and your purpose? And, and they're trying to grill you. And, and in the end, you know, they're asking the questions because I'm being cross-examined, but I don't get to ask them questions and I don't know why they sued, why they froze my account or anybody's account. But when this large-scale suit takes place, uh, they will have to provide full disclosure, un unredacted disclosure. So we're going to see what notes were made and who made what notes. And we'll see when the superintendent Bodwin of the RCMP had made uh, had put my name on this list and contacted my bank to shut me down. Um, he'll have notes made in his book as to, you know, why, why my name was picked. And, uh, and I'll have a good laugh when I get to see that. But clearly, Justice Mosley said, uh, you just can't do that. Like, you know, he didn't have to get into the whys. It's like, you just did it and you shouldn't have done it. You don't do that to any Canadian. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I can tell you there are going to be more than hundreds of people reeling right now they should be very worried and the banks should be worried as well the banks should be very worried the police officers that committed some atrocities in this 
trampled people, not only trampled people with horses, but then texted one another that our horse team wasn't able to get there yet. Can you save some of those people for us to trample? Wow. This type of conversation. Yeah. It's disgusting. And they're going to need to be held accountable. Yeah. Whatever your political position is, you, you know, if you don't agree uh, with this freedom convoy, you have to understand that one day you'll have a concern about something. And if you got uh, angry enough and, 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 and loud enough, um, you have to realize that people have that right. I, 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 let me give you an example. As much as I am not a fan of Justin Trudeau, okay, and I, I, I don't know any Canadian that is, I recall seeing a survey the other day on uh, Twitter and somebody had posted, uh, how many people think that Justin Trudeau should be uh, booted off of Twitter? And about 70%, 70 to 75% of the people said, yeah, he should be booted off of Twitter. And I was quite taken back by that, you know, and I had to post mm-hmm. a response to that saying, um, do, you, do you realize what you're saying? You know, if you think it's okay that we vote him off the island and don't give him his right to speak, yeah. then, you're, then you're no better than he is. You know, everybody needs to have their rights. We fight for the rights of everybody, whether I agree with them or I don't. Yeah. Don't take people's rights away. We don't trample on their rights. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that was the entire problem with Canada's response to COVID is that they started taking away people's rights. You know, they started taking away the constitutional rights of Canadians. So it's one thing to talk about, you know, health and safety, it's another thing to take away people's, you know, freedom of expression, freedom of movement, right to protest. Um, and, you know, these, the invoking the Emergencies Act, I mean, it just seemed so crazy because it was, like you said, such an extreme response. And there were other options. Can you talk a little bit more about what other options, you know, like how could the government have gone about this? in in a different way well the simplest option by far the cheapest quickest simplest option is if the prime minister would have sat down and said oh i see you guys are here and i see you have thousands and thousands of people here um okay let's set up a boardroom and pick you know two or three or five representatives come into a conference room let's chat Let's have a conversation. That's all they were asking for, right? Let's have a conversation and let's see how we can resolve this, right? Do it like grownups. But but we have more than a prime minister, right? We we have, he's not only, Justin Trudeau is not only a prime minister, he is a leader. He is a young global leader. He's a graduate of the World Economic Forum's Young Leaders Program. And the um, the leader of one of our opposition's par- opposition parties, the New Democratic Party, Jagmeet Singh, um, he's also a leader, young global leader, graduate of the World Economic Forum, Young Leaders Program. And they love working together. They have a coalition where they work together. So, you know, there's there's a coincidence there. There's a lot of coincidences that are happening and people need to not forget that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the media narratives surrounding the convoy were particularly 
I want to say amusing, but you know, it's not amusing because the media completely failed to do their jobs and, and, you know, they didn't fail. They chose not to do their jobs. And the reporting on the convoy was so misrepresentative um, and totally, you know, portrayed the convoy as, you know, far right, Nazi, white supremacist, as dangerous, violent, terrorists. Um, and meanwhile, I was seeing, you know, I immediately was so excited and inspired by the convoy. And then I started seeing, you know, video after video after video of footage from what was going on in Ottawa and in other cities as well. And it was so clear that these were peaceful, joyful protests, Canadians coming together and, you know, responding in really loving ways to policies and and decisions that were really atrocious and really destructive to Canada as a country and to, you know, Canadian citizens as individuals, of course. Um, and still, there's still people who who cling to those narratives. You know, they, they are still clinging to what they read in the CBC that, you know, these, you know, the harassment, diesel fumes, honking throughout the night, harassment, um, you know, again, that these people were somehow dangerous or violent, that there were guns, that, you know, there is potential terrorism, you know, they tried to frame it as in the same way that they, that January 6th in the U.S. was framed. Um, I don't know, have you ever, have you ever had conversations with any of those people, the people who claim that the convoy they were in fact made up of these dangerous, crazy white supremacists. And of course, Trudeau had to invoke the Emergencies Act. And of course, of course, these people were dangerous. And of course, we had to respond in this way. So have I ever had conversation with what particular people? People who, who continue to make those claims, who continue to portray the convoy in the way that the Canadian media did and, and, you know, who are still clinging to those narratives that this was not a peaceful protest, that this was something akin to terrorism and that this was an illegal protest that had to be shut down and that it was a danger to Canadians. Um, I actually prefer not to engage with those individuals. Most of them that are going to say that, uh, are falling into one of two categories. They're people who live in the Ottawa area and they just didn't want to hear the horn honking and they just they just took a certain perspective. I don't live in the Ottawa area, so I don't see them. I don't connect with them. And on social media, you know, there's no reason for me to communicate. I don't want to get into playing games on social media. Yeah. But there are the people that may live within your town or my town, you know, people who live some distance away who have a perspective on that that might be different, or that is different than the truth. And uh, would, I, would I engage in those conversations with those individuals? Absolutely, I do. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's taking me time. It's taken me time over the course of my life to figure out, I, I've done law enforcement for 32 years. And in that 32 years, I've, I've got to say, you know, you, you're a person of authority. So I really don't need to listen as much. I get to talk and make my arrest and do my thing. And, you know, you, you can have your say when you get to court, you know, but in retirement where I, where I have to dialogue with people more, um, it's a learning curve. 
but but I have really woken up in the last five years in terms of uh, spending a lot of time listening to to perspectives. Actually, it's not that I didn't listen to perspectives in the course of my career. Uh, I was I was very aware of uh, garnishing all the perspectives because that's what you do in law enforcement. You're I want to hear everybody's side of the story, right? That's if I'm going to make a decision, I have to hear everybody's side of the story. But when it comes to trying to be convincing in having these conversations, um, you know, once that mind is shut, it doesn't want to open. And there's a number of reasons and psychological rationale behind that. But I think the big one is um, it, it's just I, I'm not a lock picker. I, I, I'm trying to get into the brain and open up your brain, uh, not to not to convince you, but just just to get it open so that you can listen to me. And that's very, very hard to do. So I use a different strategy. And rather than tell you what I experienced and rather than, you know, explain it to you, I just ask questions. Yeah. I just ask questions and, and people love to answer questions. So, you know, I'll just ask you questions. Hey, if that was true, then, you know, what about this? And then I'll, I'll take you down the interrogative path by asking questions. And it's highly effective to do that and uh, not to engage emotionally and say to people, hey, can we just have an adult conversation without getting angry and yelling at each other? You know, can, I'd like to talk about this. And I really want to hear your perspective if you're willing to listen to mine. You know, can we do that? I'll even buy you a drink. You know, come on, let's let's have that conversation. But don't 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 get angry and don't get emotional about it. Yeah. I think that's a great approach. So I appreciate hearing your response on that because, you know, of course it, it can always feel emotional, not just because, you know, we have our opinions, but people are very upset for good reason about what went down during COVID. And, and it's, you know, I think it's a struggle sometimes to stay calm when you're engaging with people who are spreading misinformation. <laughs> Our favorite word um, <laughs> of the past few years. Um, you have a degree in electronic engineering technology, correct? Electronic engineering technology, yes. Yeah, and you've you've talked quite a bit about data collection and the impact of data collection on people. And I know that that was, I mean, it should be a concern for everyone, but I know that that became a concern for a lot of people during COVID in terms of the, um, the digital vaccine passport and those kinds of things that were required during that time to, for example, cross the border. Um, did you have concerns about um, ArriveCan? I just am like my brain blip. Was that what it was called, ArriveCan? No, it's actually referred to now as ArriveScam. <laughs> I'm sorry, I did get it wrong. <laughs> What did you think about that whole thing? What was your response? I did not partake in that whatsoever. It's like, you're not going to get me to do that. Listen, I'm one of the few people that I know that has a de-Google phone. I won't put anything on my phone that tracks me in any way, shape, or form. There's nothing on my phone that, that is going to track me. Uh, it, it's My phone is just a phone. It's pretty, it's like a Fred Flintstone phone. It's basic, but... Uh, for me to put surveillance software that's 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 going to um, give the government the opportunity to further further move ahead in the agenda and the agenda the technocratic side of things towards um, 
uh, um, this uh, really this technocratic digital ID system. And I have spoken quite a bit about CBDC, central bank digital currencies, but you know, the whole notion that we need to have this type of system in place. Uh, we already saw what happened following 9-11 with um, surveillance and the technocratic side of things in airports and such. Um, mm -hmm. No, I'm not a fan of this. This isn't needed. This isn't required. And this is government overreach. And I will resist this till the end. I'm not going to participate in that system. And how can people resist? I mean, in terms of ArriveCan, like, uh, well, they've got rid of it, so it's fine now. I actually, I crossed the border, I think, twice while that was in place, and I just refused to participate, and it wasn't really a big deal. Like, they do threaten you, but I was like, okay, sure, fine me. Like, I'm not paying a fine, but go ahead. I know that this is unconstitutional. I'm a Canadian citizen. I know what my rights are. Um, and, you know, I think for a lot of people, I think, I, I don't know how many people push back, but I got the impression that the border guards had been dealing with a lot of pushback because the first time I crossed and I refused to show any information about vaccines and I had refused to do arrive can, um, they were not surprised. <laughs> You know, I got to the border and the, the border guard said, so Megan, you haven't, we were driving across the border. Um, so Megan, you, you haven't done a, a ride can. And I was like, nope. And he goes, well, I know where this is going. <laughs> and I was like, yep. And he was like, well, your, your, your test kits, submit these yada, yada, yada. You might get fined. You might get a call. You might get a visit. Go ahead. It's like, Okay. See ya. Um, but I, I think for a lot of people, they just think that these things are easier. Um, you know, this is simpler. Or they just sort of assume they have no choice. They don't know what their rights are. Um, what do you say to people in terms of thwarting these these systems and these these attempts to implement further, you know, further entrench the surveillance state um, and collect data and, and track people? Um, you know, you uh, tell us about your phone. <laughs> okay, so when it when it comes to the example of the arrive can, let's go back and revisit that. That that's a really good example. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, before you're going to get into a conflict, and people do not like conflict, I, I understand that. So before you're going to get into conflict, are you the kind of person that's actually going to educate yourself? Because you should. You should know what your rights are and you should know what, you know, in Canada, what the Constitution says. If you're a citizen or in the U.S., you should know. You should know what your rights are to begin with, because mm -hmm. if you don't, you won't know they're being violated. So know what your rights are, first and foremost, and then say, yeah, I don't have to do that because that would be a violation of my right. And so then when you're asked to do that, you say, no, I, I respectfully decline. I'm not going to do it. You know, you don't have to get angry about it. You just know I'm, I'm not going to do it. And, and I don't have to even explain why I'm not going to have this conversation. I'm just not yeah. doing it. Yeah. So, so what are you going to do about it? I'm not doing it. Are you going to arrest me? You know, no, they're not. So it's very simple. But as time goes by in, in that example, yeah, sure. That's what they said to you at the beginning. But as time went on, you could bet that those in governance you know, and, and Health Canada. And so, by the way, Health Canada is 75% funded by the pharmaceutical industry. 
most people don't know that. But, you know, when Health Canada says, yes, yes, we're going to make it mandatory. Uh, well, guess what? You know, a lot of people are saying no. So what does the what does the guard say? The guard says, that's ah, OK, whatever, you know, whatever. But as time goes on, they're like, hmm, we're getting some resistance. We're, we're going to have to push harder. So they have their strategy meetings and they're like, what are we going to do? The next time Megan comes, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So it takes time, but they get a little more bold and bold. You know, they get sharper and they have their meetings and their confabs and they're like, so what do we do next time? And then they sit down with their staff at, at, the, at the border and they say, OK, here's here's what we're going to do. Here's how it's going to happen. So what, what ended up happening in that case was the border agents are saying, it's not my job. You know, my job is not, I don't work for Health Canada. It's not an act that I enforce. I don't care. I'm not doing it. So they said, okay, well, if you're not going to do it, here's what you have to do. If they refuse, then you say, okay, pull over. And there's a person that's going to be waiting for you over there. And you're going to deal with them, not me. And so who are you dealing with now? Now you're dealing with somebody from the health department who says, I have authority over you because we're in a pandemic and you need to quarantine and you need to fill out this app and you need to do this and you need to do that. Again, have you educated yourself about the quarantine act? Now we're into a different legal realm. And if you have, then great, you'll know what to say. You'll know how to push back and you'll know how to say no. But it, it requires a lot of work and effort to educate yourself. And it also requires a lot of courage for somebody to say, I know I'm going into conflict, but I'm, I'm going to take the heat and I'm going to go into conflict because it's the right thing to do. Otherwise, you're just a, a, a brainless numbskull that is just going to be obedient and comply with everything. And you're going to comply yourself right into tyranny. So I, I, I commend you for the actions that you took. Yeah. And not only, you know, it's not, it's not just about you. Like it's about Canada. It's about our constitutional rights. It's about the rights of everyone. So to me, whether or not it's easier for you, you know, that that's not what the issue should be in any case. Right. It's much bigger than that. I'm a writer and a podcaster, which means I can't sleepwalk through life. My brain is my most important tool, so not only do I need to keep my energy up, but my mind needs to be sharp. I work for myself, which means I need to self-motivate and make sure that I can focus in order to be as productive as I can on a daily basis. Focus is something I've always struggled with. We all know how easy it is to get distracted, especially when you're trying to do a million things at once. So I can't tell you how relieved I was to find Magic Mind. It doesn't replace my beloved wake-up coffee, but I drink it a little later in the afternoon as a pick-me-up to help me stay focused and productive throughout the day. Magic Mind has these things called nootropics, which improve cognitive function, meaning they boost my attention span, ability to process and learn new information, and improve my notoriously bad memory. Lion's mane mushrooms help reduce anxiety, which is something I work hard to keep in check by living a balanced lifestyle, but of course still pops up from time to time when I'm feeling like I'm not staying on top of my goals. 
It also helps reduce inflammation. And of course, the matcha in there keeps my energy levels up. If you want to give Magic Mind a try as part of your daily routine, go to www.magicmind.com slash same drugs and use my discount code SAMEDRUGS20 to get 56% off of your first subscription or 20% off your first one-time purchase. That's www.magicmind.com slash same drugs code same drugs 20. What's the, what is the national citizens inquiry? Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the national citizens inquiry was formed. Uh, it actually started up its inception started about a year ago. And uh, it was an idea that was bounced around that a lot of people are hurting. A lot of people are suffering as a result of what happened. A lot of people have things to say because the government is saying, you know, this is the best thing for us to do. And it was the right direction. And none of those contrarian voices were able to get out. So the National Citizens Inquiry, it, it's um, a, to its credit, a great thing that it did was it traveled across the country from one province to another and it it held conference in every province and it said you know if you've got a story to tell if you were injured by this or harmed by this or you've got some interesting uh, evidence that you want to add that, that may be a contrarian uh, opinion to what was happening and how this rolled out we want to hear from you we want to take your statement take your deposition you know swear to uh, the, the statement you're about to give, the evidence and testimony that you're prepared to testify to. And we want to hear your story because, you know, we want to compile a broad spectrum list of uh, all the things that went on across the country from one end to another that nobody's hearing about. Mm -hmm. Nobody has a voice to tell those stories about how it affected them. And all the politicians were invited as well, you know, so we invited politicians from each province to say, hey, do you want to come and give, uh, you know, you'll, you'll have a chance to come as well. And they invited uh, mainstream media news to come as well. And mainstream media news didn't come and the politicians didn't come and everybody avoided it like the plague. And it traveled across the country. It was citizen funded and citizen led. And uh, I, I was fortunate enough to be somebody who was able to testify at the NCI. I gave my statement as to, based on my level of expertise and professionalism, here's how I see it playing out and here's how it affected me. And here's probably, um, you know, my opinion on some issues in why I see the collective hive mind working in the way that it did. You know, I try to give my explanation and version as best I could. And, uh, and, and it allows Canadians to realize that they're not alone in this. They're not crazy. They're not thinking, am I, you know, am I living in an insane world? No, mm. there's, there's hundreds or if not hundreds of thousands, probably millions of Canadians that feel a certain way. And also while this was all going on, we have to understand there were travel restrictions in our country as well, that if you were not vaccinated, you weren't allowed to get on a plane for a period of time or a train or a ship. So you essentially couldn't leave the country or travel from one part of the country to another part of the country because, you know, unless you want to get in your car and drive from one side to the other, they're not going to allow you to travel. And how did that affect you? How did that affect you when 
maybe one of your loved ones on the other side of the country had died and you're trying to make it to a funeral or something. So there are all kinds of horrific stories. And there was a lot of testimony from scientists and people in the medical profession as well that had a very contrarian view to what you were hearing in the mainstream media. So that, that uh, ended, I believe, in uh, April. You know, it went on until April, from about January till April. Um, or March, April. It was, it was two to three months was the, the tour and the collection of information. And the NCI still exists, and it will still be morphing into something else. It will be uh, continuing on to serve the citizens of this country. Yeah. Uh, so it, it continues on. Yeah, I think, I mean, that, that, that what you mentioned around letting people know that they're not alone and they're not crazy, I think is really important because, of course, a major thing that happened um, during COVID was that people were literally isolated from one another. And so they became heavily dependent on mainstream media narratives and on social media. And what was happening on social media, I mean, first of all, that's what the information that you're getting is controlled by big tech and the algorithms um, and people who were speaking out against the narrative, challenging the narrative, providing truths that were being hidden by, by big tech, by mainstream media were banned, censored, um, shadow banned, and so on and so forth. And, you know, that was a really great tool that the government had to be able to isolate people and make them feel like they're the only one who's questioning this, that they're crazy. And of course that they'll be, they'll be punished if they do speak out. And one of the things that was really inspiring about the convoy was that people, you know, got together in person, face to face, saw that they weren't alone. Um, I, I was just so impressed by the the organizing that went into all of this. And I when I was back on the island, my family lives on Vancouver Island now, though I grew up in, in Vancouver, the city of Vancouver. Um, and I connected to a lot of, of the freedom people over on the island. And it's just, it's so amazing what the truth is versus what you think the truth is. Right. You look you, at mainstream media and social media. Absolutely. And, you know, to your point about how organized the convoy seemed to be, I could not I could not believe I really had a hard time believing that we actually organically just all came together peacefully. People were setting up bases and base camps and uh, deep fryers and cookers and grills and making all this food. And it was so uh, organized and everything just everybody just pitched in. It was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can to just make this work. And, and let's all make sure we feed each other and let's make sure it's all work. So when you think, you know, the government has to spend a ton of money and do a ton of research and, and hire a number of engineers, how to figure its way out of a wet paper bag. You know, it, it's incredible how inefficient they are and how they get it wrong so often. And yet, when people come together in, in something that they, that inspires them and motivates them, it just happens and they make it work. And, and because they're all in sync, because um, they're all together in this, they make it work. And, you know, there was a, there was a time, there's many, many stories 
of how this affected me when I was there. But I'll never forget one uh, opportunity was there's a team of doctors, um, people like Dr. Hodkinson, uh, Paul, uh, Michael Alexander, um, a number of doctors that had come together and were working with us because on a daily basis, they were doing conferences in the hotel, inviting the government to come and listen to them in what they had to say. And of course, they would never get audience from the government, but they were trying to have government audience with the government. And at one point we're sitting there, you know, eating hamburgers or something in a boardroom. And I looked at, at everyone and we had truck drivers sitting in the room with law enforcement officers and um, doctors who were so concerned. We, we had these different tiers in society, you know, this hierarchical tiers. And it didn't feel like it. We all felt like we were brothers and sisters having dinner at a big boardroom table. Like there was no hierarchy in terms of authority. We were all on the same level. And we came to realize, we just stopped and looked at each other and said, you know, I, I don't feel like that's the doctor's table and this is the, the truck driver's table. You know, we, we were all equal at that point. And what made us equal is that we all had the exact same thing to lose, our freedom. And that's why we're in this fight. It was like we're in a war zone and we're we're all pushing as hard as we can to do what we can. And everybody appreciated everybody else's effort, regardless of what your function was. It was it was magnificent. Yeah, it's just it's amazing and so inspiring. And again, I'm just so I'm so grateful to to everyone who is involved in the convoy. And I think, you know, everyone that I've met and talked to has been involved, has been so, you know, wonderful and um, it's just, it made me feel hopeful about Canada for the first time in a really long time. Right. So this court decision that just came out deals specifically with that time frame from when the government came out with the big heavy stick or the big gun until the time they revoked it and said, okay, we're, we're putting away that authority now. You know, we've, we've made them go away. Now we're done with it. And that is the component that was ruled on to be unlawful or where the government just did not have the authority to do that. So we're now moving to a phase of holding everybody responsible that chose to pick up the big stick and start hitting everybody or the banks that were saying, no problem, we'll, we'll just shut down those bank accounts. No warrant, no authority. But you know, when the police ask, sure, no problem, we'll just, we'll just shut down all those accounts. So we're now going to hold them all accountable. But there are, you know, two to two and a half years of other things that happened before that. And, uh, you know, about a year's worth or maybe six months or so worth of other stuff that happened after that, that this suit, this, this um, decision is not applicable to. And we'll, we'll need to get to those issues and we'll need to slowly, one by one, resolve them all. And uh, I know you're going to have the same problem, you know, the same problem in the U.S. is, is going to happen there. And in Europe, the same problem is going to happen there. We haven't even talked about, we don't have time for it on your show. We haven't even talked about the fact that France is about to fall and that Germany is in chaos and that, you know, what's happening. Well, the farmers, the yeah. farmers, that's amazing too. Yeah, they're sick and tired of the same nonsense and they're mm -hmm. really pushing back, really pushing back. And, and what's happening at the southern U.S. border in Texas and, I, I think if we were waiting and waiting for something bad is going to happen, something critically 
crazy is going to happen. We are watching it now. So, yeah, for sure. Is there a way that people can support your cause? You know, so you're you and I don't know who else is is moving to to sue everyone who was involved to hold those responsible, accountable. How can Canadians support that process? Well, right now we are just in the process of having this whole system set up, and I suspect uh, it won't be set up for a few more days. You know the. Uh, the accounts need to be set up and the email addresses need to be set up. But we've uh, already been announcing that this is what's happening. So if people want to reach out to me, they can reach me on uh, X by uh, my contact is at V Gersies. And, um, you know, somebody reaches out and says, hey, I, I want to help. I want to support. I will certainly forward your information to somebody on our team who can get back to you and we can further engage. And I mean, there's a number of organizations that you're involved with, which I just wanted to mention. I, one of them is P Police for Freedom, um, which people can find at policeforfreedom.org. There's Take Action Canada, and then, of course, the Accountability Project. And you, where, else can, where else can people find you and support your work online? Uh, that's about it. My, okay. my, my best uh, contact, I think, that just works easy for me is the at BGerseys on Twitter. Okay, perfect. It was so great to connect with you. It was great to meet with you. It was great to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you again so much for, for doing this work. Thanks for spreading the word. I really appreciate it. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. I produce and host this podcast all by myself and rely entirely on individual donors to sustain my work. This is all me and you, the listener. If you want to keep episodes free as well as free thinking, please consider signing up on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Megan Murphy or by subscribing on Substack at www.meganmurphy.ca. You can also donate directly to support this podcast via PayPal at paypal.me slash the same drugs. Every little bit counts and ensures I can stay independent. Thank you so much for supporting conversations outside the algorithm.